0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I want us to look this morning at the Son of God and the Son of Man from John 5. And I want us to see that Jesus is the love of God who gives life to all that believe in him. I remember early on in our marriage, before I had learned all the lessons that I needed to learn, We were in the car one day and I couldn't figure out how to do something on the dash and Kristen sitting in the passenger seat said, why don't I get the instruction manual out? What's the instruction manual? But I don't even know what that is. I'm not getting that out. Why would I ever read that, right? And so, as I'm pushing buttons, believing that if I just keep pushing buttons long enough, I will achieve what I have set out to achieve, she opens to the table of contents, finds the reference, turns to the page, reads the three instructions, and in between my pushing buttons, boo, 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 fixes what we were trying to fix. It really helps when you use that which is available to you for the purpose and to understand the purpose of what you are trying to accomplish, does it not? And what we're going to see today is that John explains to us in the way Jesus was explaining to the people of his day why he has come and how it is we can understand who he is and what he's done so that it matters every day for our life. That's what I want us to see as Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. First of all, let me just give you kind of an idea of how the sermon's going to flow today. Jesus introduces himself as God, and we see that this uh, conflict that has arisen because he healed the invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. And the religious people don't like it, not because he healed the man or didn't, but because he did it on the wrong day of the week. And that offended them. It offended their offenses. And in so doing, they demanded that he not do that. And it tells us in verse 16, 17, and 18 that because Jesus was doing God's work and looked just like God claimed to be God doing the work that he did, that offended them. And that's why they sought to kill him. And so Jesus, in response to that, is seeking to explain to them why it is He has come and why it is they've rejected Him. And that's what we will see today in our passage of Scripture. Let's go to the 19th verse of John 5. And you follow along as I read aloud. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pause there for a moment and ask that God would bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding in the obeying of his word today. As we begin this passage of scripture, Jesus responds to the religious folk by explaining to them and validating for them why he is God. And what we see is simply that he says, first of all, that he only does what the Father is doing. That what Jesus does is done because that's what the Father is doing. And he makes this relationship of perfect unity between he and the Father. And so in perfect unity, Jesus' purpose in the world is to fulfill the will of God in the world. And he tells us that he comes with the full love of God in him. That's who Jesus is. His relationship with the Father is secured perfectly in the love of the Father. You see, love is the consummate motivation for all the work of God. For God so loved the world. That's what Jesus is teaching them here. And so the Father shows Jesus all that He is doing so that He can do it too. Because Jesus and the Father give life. That's what He tells them. But... The Father gives to the Son full authority that He might be the one who judges so that the Son, in His activity of judging, in His role of judging, can be honored with the Father. And in this unity of relationship, He says that it is such of a oneness that to honor one is equal with honoring the other, and to reject one is equal to rejecting the other. And so the father gives his love to the son to give eternal life to all who will believe in him. And the father gives the son not only all of his love, but all of his authority to give life because he loves, but also to judge life. You see, Jesus as the Son of God holds all the Father's love and authority to give life because he enjoys perfect unity with the Father. And Jesus as the Son of Man holds authority to give eternal life and to judge because he holds all the glory of God and perfectly understands man. We're seeing the, the, the fullest of John's Uh, uh, articulation and explanation of the Christology of Christ, of who Jesus is. And so at the appointed time, it says, which the Father only knows, Jesus will call all people forth, even from the grave, just like he did Lazarus. And those who've done good, it says, will go to eternal life, and those who've done evil to eternal judgment. Now, I want to explain this to you because this is a point at which some might incorrectly understand what John is teaching here. Good or evil in Jesus' judgment will be determined by whether we believed in the only one who is truly good, Jesus Christ. The measurement of Christ's judgment will not be in the stacking or removing only of our morality, of our good deeds, our good actions, our good thoughts, our right behaviors, whatever the case may be. It's not a measure of comparison that we make. If I do enough good, it'll overcome the evil that I've done. But rather, whether someone has done good or done evil in the final judgment of Jesus will be determined by one thing what did they do with the only one who is truly good did they believe in Jesus the ultimate good or did they reject him all evil judgment comes to all who reject Jesus Judgment is missed by all who take refuge in the judge. Eternal life comes to all who will hear Jesus' word and believe in him. John uses that ever so blessed word in chapter 5 that he used in chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes... And that's what he says here, whoever believes in Jesus will have life. And so he continues as he explains his purpose as the son of God and the son of man. And look what he says as he begins to confront the rejection of the people of that day. Verse 30, let's continue reading. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's what Jesus says. I've come as the Son of God, full of the love of God, to bring the life that only God can give. I have come as the Son of Man, with all of God's authority, to give life and to judge Those who accept and believe or reject me. But here's what he says. I do nothing on my own. All of my work is performed out of this perfect unity in relationship with the Father. He hears from the Father in order to make his judgment because he seeks the Father's will in all things. And Jesus understands that the first and the highest witness to his authority and to his work comes from the one with whom he lives in perfect unity. And so he says this, I have come as God and the greatest testimony that you can receive of me is the testimony of the reality of what I've said, what I've done, and the one whose work that I have come to perfectly perform. You see, Jesus depends completely upon hearing from the Father to act. He did nothing of his own. And he goes on in these verses to establish what I'm calling four witnesses to the fact that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. The first witness that he refers to in verses 32 to 35 is this. It's John the Baptist. And, and here's what Jesus does. He argues from the lesser to the greater, from, from everything that they knew in their religion and in their practice to everything that their religion and their practice was all about. You see, John the Baptist was one that Jesus says, you liked him for a while. He was sent from God the Father to do the work that he did. And I don't beckon upon his testimony excuse me, testimony to validate who I am because he was a man, but I, I, I share his witness about who I am because he was a prophet sent from God. And the people recognized John the Baptist as a prophet for a time, as long as it was convenient for them. But they accepted him only for a time. For when they grew weary of his incessant warnings against their empty religion, they dismissed him as radical propaganda and wanted nothing to do with him, even to kill him as well. But he lived so remotely, they didn't have to deal with him immediately. John the Baptist didn't let people put out the light of his witness, but he faithfully testified that Jesus was the Messiah the second witness that Jesus points to is the witness of the Father himself. And while he's already demonstrated and taught how the Father validates his work as God, he now referenced the Father as a very witness out of their own religious practice. He says the Father not only sent him, but serves as a witness that he, in fact, is God. And he says this to them, referencing Moses going up on the mount to receive the Ten Commandments. He says, you've never heard his voice and you've never seen his form, have you? Because his word does not abide in you. His word never got off the stone into the stone of your heart. He's referring to where Moses goes up and he experiences the presence of God. And the story tells us that when Moses came down from the mountain, that even though he had his back turned and God covered him so he wouldn't kill him when his presence was with him, he was so brilliant with the glory of God days, weeks after he had been with God, he came down off the mountain and the people could not stand nor bear the glory that reflected off of Moses. And so they, they said, you got to stop, you got to stop, you got to cover it up. And the form and the voice of God could not be withheld, or excuse me, could not be beheld by the people. You see, that the presence of the Father was important in their religion. But even in their religion, God the Father, though important, was still removed because they put labels of high and holy on Him, not as His true character was, But rather where they wanted to place him. God was practically unapproachable to them. Such that they would not pronounce the name of Yahweh. For fear that this unapproachable God would immediately strike them dead if they mispronounced it. If they wrote it wrong. Very few people could even write the name of God in their religious tradition. But friends, but. What they couldn't do. That created a crisis for them. Was they couldn't deny the mighty works of God that Jesus performed. The Father was not remaining far off from them. You see how God is changing their understanding from wrong to right, from broken to healed. He sent His only Son. God had come to them and was with them. Jesus hears and he sees the Father because he is the living word that is sent from above. The third witness that he beckons upon is the witness of the scriptures. What Jesus does is with increasing pervasiveness, he moves with weightier arguments into the very heart of their religion and he invades the religious stronghold to show that even the pillars of their religion cry out in witness to who he is as the son of God and the son of man. The Pharisees were the masters of the scriptures. In order to become a Pharisee, you had to memorize the Torah. That That is what we would consider today the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And in a day and time when biblical illiteracy really seems to pervade the church itself, they memorized in their religion books that I I might even purport that the greater amount of those who genuinely claim to be Christian haven't even read. And surely would argue any relevance for their life so lest we cast a, con, a, a condemnation upon the pharisees for their practice let us be very careful in understanding how closely we align with them the claiming of one thing and the living of the other but as masters of the scripture he said you know what you you study, you search, you memorize, you teach, you explain the scriptures, believing that in them you have life. And it is they that testify to me. You know how they knew this? They knew this from the testimony of Nicodemus in John 3. What did he tell them when he came to Jesus in night? He said, we know that you are different because of God. The Bible tells us that when Jesus taught, it wasn't like any other teacher. It was like no other preacher. He spoke as one with authority. See, the problem was the very scriptures that they claimed to own were owned by a man they wanted nothing to do with. And that was a real crisis for them. Friends, unbelief blinds us that we miss what is right in front of us. For the scriptures testify to Jesus because he is the living word of God. If the offense of these three witnesses managed to be overlooked, well, the final witness would strike at the very core of their religion. Jesus says this in verses 45 to 47. He says, I, I don't have to accuse you. Though I will be the one that judges. I don't have to accuse you. For Moses has already accused you. You stand at the end of his accusing. You see, Moses was the center of their religion. The highest prophet. The, the highest leader. He was the author of all their texts. And if Moses pointed to jesus it would literally dismantle their whole religion and do you know what jesus told them i bet you can guess same thing hebrews 3 tells us moses's testimony points to jesus as the messiah jesus tells them you missed moses and that's why you missed me Moses was not their savior. He was the instrument of God to point them to the one who would come as God's Messiah. You see, Jesus penetrates to the center of their religion in order to expose the fallacy of their unbelief. And they miss Jesus because they rejected every witness that God sent to them. And that's what Jesus does. He establishes his work through the perfect unity of his relationship with the Father. And then through the four witnesses of their own religion that he says points to me. What he's telling us is that he, Jesus, is the love of God who gives life to all who will believe in him. And only Jesus gives true life. Go back with me to verses 41 to 44. And I want you to see this because this is where Jesus gives the the crux of his answer to their problems. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. But if another came in his own name, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here's the two biggest problems that he addresses. Number one, they had no love. And number two, they had a failing glory. I want us to look at these two problems and I want us to see how it is that Jesus comes and responds. You see, Jesus, he says, didn't come with a glory like that from people. He didn't come with an unfulfilled promise. He fulfilled the promise of God's love. He came, verse 20 says, full of God's love from above. And Jesus brings from God what every person most desires, love and acceptance. Jesus also came with all authority that he might give life over all, even death and the grave and hell. Jesus came to give what we kill ourselves looking for and what we kill ourselves trying to achieve. Here's what Jesus says about our incessant striving after man-centered glory that he points out here. You'll never find life in all of these things that you run after and that you strive after to achieve. But you don't have to keep killing yourself for them. I have died that death. For you. Jesus came that we might have life. John 10.10 tells us. And have it to the full. Friends. We reject Jesus today. For the same reason they rejected him. Then for the same reason people have always rejected Jesus. Because of unbelief. We will not believe. Our heart is hard. It will not receive. It will not accept. Unbelief in its varied forms is always the reason people remain separated from Jesus. But Jesus, He loves us. He addresses our unbelief that He might invite us to believe in Him. And they miss the testimony of the witnesses that were so close to them, as we do so often today, because we reject Jesus for lesser loves and for lesser glories. Let's look at these two biggest problems that hinder us from believing in him. Problem number one, their unbelief was masked as religion offering a loveless substitute for God. Their biggest problem was an unbelief masked as religion that offered a loveless substitute for God. You see, the first problem causes a person to miss what they most desire in life. You ever met a person that didn't want to be loved? You won't ever meet a person that doesn't want to be loved. We all look for it differently. We all search for it differently. We all ask for it differently. And some people will claim that they don't want to be loved. But the very reason that they don't want to be is because of the hurt that non-love has impacted them with. We want to be loved and accepted in life. And Jesus knows that. And without true love, there is no real life. Jesus said this, you do not have the love of God within you, but I am the full love of God that has come to you. You see how one works with the other? I got nothing. I got everything. Let's get together, right? That's what Jesus was saying. The love that every person desperately wants more than anything else in life is only found in Jesus. Religion promises life with God, but here's what's missing. Love. Love is missing in religion, and the life that it provides through the ritual it demands only proves a hollow and meaningless life, and it is useless to us when it's most needed by us. You see, unbelief, masked as religion, tells you that God is at the end of your achievement rainbow. It legislates what you need to do, how you need to do it, and then how you need to do it again and 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 again, ad nauseum, etc., into oblivion. That's all religion has for you. Religion is what we end up with when we remove Jesus from God and we try to achieve through our own activity. Friends, religion never deals with the real issue that it promises love and acceptance from God. Life with God. Religion works you tirelessly to get to God, but it moves you no closer to him. Religion promises that you can get from God, but first you must appease or impress God. You must satisfy him in some way. Religion offers you love, but it has none to give. It promises you life, but what it does is it just ends up sucking all the life out of you. Religion always makes God what you want Him to be. Religion makes God what you think you need Him to do. Religion makes God when you need Him to come through and how you need Him to work out your plan. You can see that religion's not just about showing up in a place and going through the motions with people at certain times, but religion is a framework of understanding that we hold about God that He is for us to do with as we will. Instead of us being created for Him to live as He wills in us. And that's what Jesus showed to us. When religion says you're a better person, you know what it offers you? Nothing. There is no reward in religion. When religion condemns you as the scum of the earth, worse than the scum of the earth, do you know what it offers as redemption? Nothing. It has nothing to offer us. Amidst all of religion's false promises and substitutes, it is little more than an eternal distraction to what God wants to do in our life. Religion masks unbelief every time you're convinced that a little more for God from me will actually bring a little more from God to me. Religion leaves you loveless, it leaves you empty with God, and subsequently, it leaves you without any real love towards other people. Religious people are the most unloving in all the world. They don't have it in them because they don't have anyone putting it in them, and they're in any in and of themselves. So ask yourself, do I live religiously? Only when I live unlovingly towards other people. Love and acceptance from God never, ever comes through religion. But it will mask your unbelief and cause you to miss Jesus every time. And as long as you never know God's love, you will never be fully satisfied with God. And you and your life will live in continual search for love in this world. I believe the song says, in all the wrong places. That's a big problem. A big problem. Religion isn't the only mask we use to hide unbelief, though. We also use self-righteousness to disregard Jesus in unbelief. And that's our second problem. Self-righteousness purports a lifeless, man-centered glory. Jesus says, you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God. This is what Jesus says. Says you're satisfied with your self-righteousness. You see, as, as love, that's all we want. And glory is what we most desire in this life. We seek it out most in life in every way. And God knows this. Do you know why God knows that we seek out glory in every way in our life? Because He created us. Hear me. God put The desire, the longing, the seeking for glory. He created it and wove it into us when he created us. Listen to me friends, understand yourself. Our problem is not that we seek glory. Our problem is that we settle for man-centered glory. For lesser glory than what God gives. Our desire for glory is the homing beacon within the human soul that searches for glory and will only be fully satisfied in God. You see, self-righteousness masks unbelief with a man-centered glory that has no power to give life. Self-righteousness tries to satisfy with man's glory and the life that man provides for himself without acknowledgement of need for God. Self-righteousness is not life. It doesn't give life because it's limited by man's glory that is bound by death and the grave. Where does God's glory work in its greatest expression? I'm going to give you a hint. His name's Lazarus. What did Lazarus do when Jesus called his name? came out because when the one who is the son of man speaks your name and you believe in him you cannot stay in the grave the stone will not stay keeping the light out of the darkness of death and hell For the authority of the Son of Man has come to execute judgment and those who have believed in him will be given unto life eternal and those who reject him, whether it's religion or self-righteousness, will be placed in a place of eternal torment and judgment and hell and suffering. Jesus is the one that determines the difference between life and death in eternity self-righteousness demands an increasingly greater amount and intensity of man glory why because the portion given never satisfies do you realize in comparison to that there is no portion that God gives to us that fails to satisfy There is no portion of man's glory that ever satisfies. There is no portion of God's glory that fails to satisfy. This is the deceit of self-righteousness when unbelief is masked by it. Self-righteousness rejects Jesus out of unbelief by placing all of our hope in man's glory. Think for a moment about the greatest person that you could ever conceive of or even history's greatest accomplishment or highest achievement. Who are they? Bring to, rec- uh, bring to remembrance who they are and what they've done. And let me ask you, where are they today? Where will they be the moment after they pass from this life? They might be held in our memory, but I'm telling you, that will cease with us as well. How many of you remember the greatest nation on the face of the earth, the greatest kingdom that has ever lived in human history? It's the kingdom of the Roman Empire. For 1,500 years they existed. How many of you remember that? Only because of what I've read from other people's writings. And it's not good. And I've studied it a lot. It's the backdrop for the whole of the Bible. You see, friends, these things will pass away. Heaven and earth. But God will not pass away. God is eternal. Understanding glory, it's much simpler than we make it. You seek glory every time you go looking for a good time. You seek glory every time you go look to have a little bit of fun. You seek glory every time you seek an adrenaline rush or something that just joys you. You seek joy every time you look to find happiness. You see, glory is found in big moments of life. It's found in the little bitty moments. It's found in the regular moments, in the daily and the weekly moments, and in the once-in-a-lifetime moments. These are all moments of glory. Glory is that moment that we remember family or friends and the warmth that comes into our heart creates just a gentle smile on our face. Glory is when we evaluate our work and we find joy in it. We see the benefit that it holds for other people or the gladness that it brings to other and we sense the glory of it. Glory is when our child accomplishes something and applauds themselves and learns. Glory for the teacher is when the light bulb moment for the student comes on. Glory for the doctor is when the, the healing takes place and, and his application of his science was actually beneficial for the person glory. Glory is when mom and dad see their child succeed. Glory is when we see uh, these things that we take hold of in life come to fruition. When the craftsman builds, when the artist creates, when the sculpture shapes in all of these ways. These are glory. Glory is not bad. What is wrong is when we settle for lesser glory that is anchored in man and denies God And the problem arises with what we do with glory in life. When we seek glory from one another, we never testify to Jesus. We never give him any glory. When we fail to give all glory to Jesus, we extract any good that we think we can for our life. But it's fleeting. We can't hold on to it. It dissipates. It's gone. Why? Because if there's no eternal glory, there will be no good that lasts. For the good that comes out of anything is always proportionately equal to the glory And when the glory is gone, so is the good. But the glory that lasts, even from today, there will not be a second of eternity that it's good will be lost for you. You get that? That's why every moment matters. Every moment of your life. Specifically what God's doing right now. Eternal glory in us is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to bring life to the full. The love of God gives us life. The glory of God gives it to the full. This is Jesus. What we most seek, what we most love in a full life will never be found by seeking God where he cannot be found. Friends, we are vulnerable to religion and self-righteousness every time we feel unloved because we're going to look for it. If we don't turn to Jesus. Every time we feel underappreciated. If we don't go to Jesus. Every time we feel rejected. Every time we feel like a failure. Every time any feeling comes upon us. That is that pre-pity party experience. We default to religion and self-righteousness. Every time we choose to live in unbelief regarding Jesus. But God's love and God's glory are only found in Jesus when we believe in him to receive life. Jesus is the love of God who gives life to all who believe in him. I'm going to conclude in this way. I'm going to show you the two roles of Jesus that he points out here to respond to the two biggest problems of unbelief. Jesus says, I am the son of God. Verse 20 says, he comes full of God's love. Do you know how God gives his love? The Bible says he lavishes it. Basically, that is an endless supply measured out in a portion that is uncontainable. Jesus demands nothing from you to get to him. When you believe in him, you receive the fullness of God's love. You see, knowing God is not about what you can do, what you have done, or what you might do, but rather what God has done for you in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, life becomes love-filled, love-motivated, and love-giving. And believing in Jesus means that you live out of the overflow of God's love flowing through you. And the more you open your life to Jesus, the more he fills and overflows it with the love of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Who has come to you stands ready to receive you with all the love of God. Jesus also says He is the Son of Man. And He addresses our unbelief because of this. He has all of God's authority to give life and to judge. He comes to us as God, He walks among us, He suffers trials hardship, and temptation. Scripture says, as we do in every way. And the biggest word in Scripture is yet. Without sin. Jesus gives perfect glory to all of life. And he gives it to whoever believes in him. The glory in Jesus Christ, hear me, is a full glory that completely satisfies with peace, joy, purpose, and meaning in all of life. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. Won't you put your trust in him alone today? Let's pray.